It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to Thanksgiving. Hope you're having a very happy day, a very special day. And I know you had to amend it, call an audible, so to speak. And I appreciate it. Whatever you do, and I hope it stands out and go out of your way, just knowing that the vaccine is on its way and next year's going to be better. I guess Christmas could actually be better. This hour, we've got a special hour. We're going to look back at some interviews with Dan Crenshaw, you know, the outstanding congressman, former Navy SEAL. He's got a book out on how he became who he is and how he lost his eyesight almost entirely, but one eye in particular. Brian Mast lost both his legs in battle, and John Cribb put together a great book on Abe Lincoln. But first things first, it's time for part one of my interview with Dan Crenshaw. In fact, it's one of one. Uh, you know with this guy, you love this guy, but here's how he became this guy. Here it is with Dan Crenshaw. Congressman, people interview you all the time. They always talk about the policy, what the issue of the day is. We don't know about you. So, Dan, you were kind enough to let Brian come in your office. Yeah. So let's talk about Once you. Once in a lifetime chance, Brian. Yeah, thank you <laughs> for that. I Make the most honored. of it. <laughs> so, uh, Brian, you're the visitor. Tell me about your story. How did, how did you end up in Congress? Well, I was laying in a hospital bed in Walter Reed back in 2010. I was injured in Afghanistan. And literally, while I was laying in that bed saying, I'm not going to return to the battlefield in the same way, I had visitors coming in from uh, the Capitol saying, you know what, maybe my next battlefield will be one of words and ideas as a member of Congress. And, you know, being a service member, we come up with op orders and plan of, uh, of attack. And, and I started to come up with a plan of attack to do it, and then I executed it. But that's how I got here. So, Dan, for you, you go to Tufts University, very respected. You knew you were going to the military after? I did, yeah. My, my, uh, my entire life was predicated on being a SEAL, so ever since I was 12 years old. Uh, so I, I did ROTC at, at Tufts and uh, went straight to Coronado, California. And you went straight there, and you act like it just says in your bio, you got through, got through training, get deployed. But man, it takes a lot to get through training, doesn't it? It does. Uh, Buds is six months long. Uh, it's longer if you break your leg, like I did. Uh, <laughs> I snapped my left tibia right in the middle of Hell Week, and it's kind of like a video game where you reach certain checkpoints. If you pass that checkpoint, you get to start back at that one. But I didn't pass it. Uh, so I, did, I got the full benefit of training, got to do Bud's, uh, or at least Hell Week twice. What did it do for you? Who was the guy going in and who was the guy getting out? Wow. Um, you know, I, I, one thing I tell people is you're a SEAL before you got there, but we had to make you prove it, and then we had to train you and all the skill sets that you needed, but the mindset was already there. Uh, and, and you have to go in with that mindset. I'm not giving myself a choice. I'm not going to quit this. This is the, considered the toughest military training in the world. Uh, they're trying to get you to quit every single day, every single minute of every single day. And you just have to tell yourself, I'm not going to do that. And then by the end of it, you've proven that to yourself. You've proven that you can go past these limits that you didn't even know you had and, and keep going. So, you, you, so I, I guess confidence is, is, is really what you get out of that. Did you do it fundamentally the same reason why Congressman Mass did service? It was about service. It's about adventure. It's about being the best. I mean, remember, I was 12 when I decided I wanted to do this dream. So the high-minded ideals of patriotism were, were maybe came later. But at first, it was about, I want to be the best. I want to be the most elite warrior that our country has. 
And, uh, and then it becomes, well, uh, it just so happens I really loved this country. I grew up abroad mostly because my dad worked in the oil and gas business. I saw what other countries were like. And don't get me wrong, I, I love some of the places I grew up in, but it gave me an appreciation for America and the American founding, American ideals, and, and the things that we protect around the world. Right, so you served, you got stationed to this great place called Fallujah. Mm -hmm. What happened? I did two deployments to Iraq. I did my third to Afghanistan. Um, you know, well, what, what happened in practical terms was we were, we were fighting Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, we were trying to uplift our Iraqi partners, and we went out every night and did that. Uh, I was wounded in 2012 in Afghanistan when an IED, um, you know, basically hit me in the face. Kind of feels like a truck with a bunch of guys shooting you with shotguns. And uh, that's... And um, I, uh, I did not want to leave that time. You know, uh, Congress is a calling. The military is a calling. It's not a job. But uh, I fought this particular calling for a long time. I was wounded in 2012. I didn't get out of the military until 2016. Uh, you know, I worked with the Navy, tried to, tried to find waivers, medical waivers, so that I could keep deploying. And I, and I did deploy two more times, but uh, eventually had to retire and, and, uh, and find a new calling. And, exactly how I ended up here. And your eye, one eye was destroyed, and the other eye you couldn't see out of. Have you ever figured out how your eyesight came back? Have doctors? Well, you know, so my, my good eye, sort of good eye, uh, had a lot of shrapnel shoot through it. And uh, I was blind for a long time. I was, I was hallucinating constantly because my optic nerves were still, were still firing. Um, the, the main issue was uh, some copper and some rock had, had shot through my lens. So the way normal people get cataracts, that's what happened to me, except it was trauma-induced. It means your lens is destroyed. And so they had to go in there and to a, to a really, and a very delicate operation, worry that my retina might attach, remove those shards, and then hope that my eye would recover. And they thought, you might see light and some blurry vision, and uh, you know, that's maybe the best you can hope for. Uh, lo and behold, I just, for some reason, I always knew that I would see better than that. Uh, I, I didn't have this this, um, this sense of dread over, over being blind, I, and, and, and it was not rational. I really should have had that sense of dread, given what my doctors were thinking. They called it a miracle that I was able to see it all after that. Um, and then it, but then, even after that surgery, they had another problem. They, they found out that my retina had a hole in it that was degenerating slowly. And so I had a choice at that moment. It was either do a, another risky surgery and risk retina detachment, which means you're totally blind, uh, or let yourself go blind slowly. So I could kind of say goodbye to people, right? Like see my wife one last time and, and see my family one last time and, just, and then just let the darkness cave in over time. Um, well, we obviously went for it. Uh, and again, this, for, for a regular person who has macular degeneration, you know, usually in their 50s or 60s, it's not a big deal. The surgery isn't a big deal. But for me, it was a huge deal. And uh, it was another miracle to, uh, to, to, to have that happen. And, and now I'm, uh, I, I can wear a special contact that allows me to see pretty well. Brian, did you know that story? I didn't know everything about his story, well, but I do know breaking your leg sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you do know that. You don't have to as worry you, about that anymore. As you, yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. So. As you stand on two prosthetic legs. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I think, one of the things that members of uh, the military bring to Congress is we have a pretty morbid sense of humor. And, uh, but do. what we survive off of, literally, in battle, in combat, is a need for common sense, a need to very accurately assess the situation and go directly at what the threat is. And I think it's probably, as much as we joke about it, one of the most important things that we try to bring. 
Wow. So that was a lot about Dan Crenshaw, a fascinating guy, man. And I'll tell you what, the president absolutely loves him and his book is a bestseller. Brian Mast, also extraordinary. These two get along great. They didn't serve together, but man, they have mutual respect. When we come back, we're going to hear a little of Brian's story, the congressman from Florida, about his deployment, his injuries, and his struggle to recover. Thanks for basting the turkey while listening to the best of Brian Kilmeade. Happy Thanksgiving from all of us at the Brian Kilmeade Show. the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everyone. Keep in mind, too, as the holiday season starts on this Thanksgiving, if everybody wants any of my book sign, just give me a little bit of lead time. Go to briankilmeade.com, Thomas Jefferson, the Tripoli Pirates, Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers, or, uh, of course, Andrew Jackson, the Miracle of New Orleans, and George Washington's Secret Six, and I'll be able to tell you what I'm doing uh, next year. Now it's time for my special interview with Congressman Brian Mast of Florida. Lost both his legs as a bomb tech. Also, Dan Crenshaw, why does he wear the patch? You're about to find out exactly why. Let's listen. And 12 years in, what happened to you? So I was serving in, uh, in Afghanistan. I was working out of Kandahar, and I was a bomb technician, an EOD guy. I'd go out there, and we only worked at night, cover of darkness, uh, looking for bombs in the most IED-laden country on Earth. And we came to an area where... There's some nasty rivers over there. They double as their sewage. You don't want to get in them. And there's a lot of uh, marijuana fields over there. That particular night that I was injured, our assault force was dropped off in a tall marijuana field on the wrong side of one of those rivers. And uh, I was leading, I was on point, kind of leading and clearing the way that night. And we got to an area where we could actually cross this river. Our target was on the other side, but there was a pretty steep embankment and a tall wall on the other side. And I told my guys, listen, this is the only place we can get across, but if we go across here, there's probably IEDs, booby traps, some kind of ambush if we cross here because the enemy can figure out we can get across there too. And uh, I went down and I got on this riverbank. I got down on my hands and knees and I start looking for batteries, wires, disturbed earth, something buried in the ground where we were going to cross. a couple missions prior, I had lost uh, some good friends that had tripped a tripwire, and it was a very in an area very close to that. So I was looking for tripwires. I had a, a laser on the front of my M4, and I would, I would, I would aim that laser downrange to look for it to glint off tripwires. I didn't see anything. And uh, I got across the river, went to the other side, and I did the same thing. And then uh, I still didn't find anything, and I stood up, and I gave the signal to these snipers that I was working with, still two good friends to this day, that I was going to forge ahead. And as I did that, I took maybe one or two, maybe three steps past where I had searched, and I found that device that was, uh, that was destined to find me. I stepped on it in all likelihood. Nobody will ever really know if it was command detonated or if I stepped on it, but I remember it vividly. It, uh, it detonated underneath my feet, and, and Dan described it like a freight train hitting him and a machine gun at the same time. I could describe it the same way. I felt like my teeth had been knocked out of my mouth. I didn't even know if I still had teeth in my mouth. Felt like uh, uh, an uppercut from Mike Tyson, and I probably landed some five or ten feet from where I had been standing. And when I landed, you know, the wind was knocked out of me. I couldn't breathe. I'm gasping for air like this time that I'd fallen out of a tree when I was young. And, and as I'm laying there, I still had my combo device in my ear. And I could hear my men radioing up to the eyes in the sky. They're saying, EOD is hit. EOD is down. And, and as that's playing out, I'm trying to wipe all of this dirt out of my eyes, the soot of the explosives and everything. And as I'm doing that, I'm looking at my left arm. 
and there's a, a ton gone on my left forearm and all of my fingers on my left hand, they were broken. They were pointing in directions that fingers aren't supposed to point in and I'm realizing, okay, this, this thing got me pretty good, realizing there's a good reason I couldn't stand up. And about then, my, uh, my men, uh, they got to me and they did probably the most painful thing that I can remember, but the most important thing is they came charging in to render aid to me and, and save my life. And uh, that was that night. Wow, I didn't even notice your hand before. But you said the most painful thing. What do you mean? So the most painful thing that I remember from that night was when they had to put tourniquets on me. So they had to put a tourniquet on what was left of each one of my legs, on what was left of my left arm. And when they did that, you know, you can picture maybe the end of my limb. It wasn't cleanly taken off. It was, it was messy. And they had to take something and put it as tightly on it as they could wow. to keep me from hemorrhaging out. Very painful. But uh, I would say very soon after that was probably the most important moment of the night when they loaded me onto a medevac helicopter and the guys loaded me onto that, uh, they gave me one last salute. Now, we don't turn on the lights for anything, but I could see in the, the few dim green lights that were on the top of the bird, they rendered me one last salute and they told me that I was going to be okay. And it's the most important thing to me that I remember from that night, them telling me that I would be okay. I always, did you know that, Dan? I didn't know the details of, of, of how you got hit and how that patrol played out. And it's, um, it's eerie to hear because we've done it so many times and uh, I, I've watched guys go through the exact same thing. Um, it was Afghans in my case. I saw a lot of our Afghan partners, multiple times actually, our Afghan partners suffer that same fate. And so it's, um, I, I can picture it exactly how, how it plays out. They tell you that when traumatic things happen, you go into shock, I don't remember. That, you remember everything. I remember it vividly. Now, I'll, I'll tell you this too. Uh, my wife and friends of mine that came and visited me along the way, you know, I went into a hospital in, uh, in Kandahar and then Bagram and then over in Landstuhl, Germany. I have things that uh, I feel like I remember vividly that my wife says, I have no idea what you're talking about, yeah. and uh, things that I don't remember at all that friends were telling me we were uh, jovial and joking at some point yeah. along the way that I, I don't remember in the slightest. That's the so. exact same, same thing at Kandahar, Bagram, Landstuhl. I woke up in Landstuhl, so I remember the whole thing as well, I, very vividly. I remember well, the jokes I made, and, and I asked for people to pour water in my eyes because I couldn't see anything. And I thought it was just because there was dirt in my eyes. And I, and I honestly thought that. I, I, it did not occur to me at all that I was going to be blind. It, it just didn't. And it didn't, it didn't make any sense in hindsight. Uh, but I remember that really well. But the weeks after, yeah, my, my memory is much more clouded. I feel like you kind of talked about it too. You know, when we wake up in these hospitals, I felt the same way about what you were saying where you're not discouraged. You realize that there's a challenge in front of you. But for us, it's just the next mission. It's just what's next yeah. and you're not sitting there thinking, you know, woe is me. Uh, and Ever? Yeah. The, the mindset kicks Never. in very fast. Uh, it has to. It's the only way to survive. Because if you do wallow in that, God, I wish it had turned out differently, you will die. And I don't really mean that metaphorically. Like, it's, it's, it's an actual possibility. You know, you have to be looking forward. And um, so, I mean, I, I, was, I was asking, what's the soonest that I can have this surgery that you're talking about so that I can see again and get back to the team? And the doctors are just kind of laughing at me at that point. They think I'm crazy. I mean, not laughing in a mean way. They're just like, well, that, that's nice, Dan, but that's just that's not the situation you're in. But it didn't matter. I, I believed it. And that allowed me to go on. I mean, that's, that's really important. It gives you the ability to keep going. A couple of things. You have this story. You're, you understand. You said something. You said, I was meant to hit that. Yeah. What do you mean you were meant to hit that? So there was a very special relationship for all of us that put on the uniform. We all have a job to do. You know, there's canine handlers, there's interrogators, there's bomb technicians, there's snipers. My job was a bomb technician. My job was to say, you know what, if you walk where I walk, 
I promise that I'm going to find something first. Hopefully I find it the right way, but I'm going to make sure I find it first. That's my path. That's my lane. That's, that's my destiny. Just like I had, I had snipers that I worked with that as I was out there on the front, I had this trust in them that I could have my eyes on the ground or, or not looking out for, for enemy combatants, but looking for IEDs and bombs, knowing that they were going to put a round in somebody before that person, that, that combatant, ever put a round in me. That was the trust that we had in one another. And so that's where I say I was meant to find it. It was my job to do it. And it would be very difficult to live with myself had one of my brothers found that instead. You could wear a patch that would look less significant, and you could wear long pants. Why do you think it's important for people to see you and wonder, maybe ask that question, and, and see this as part of your past? Well, I don't do it so people see and wonder. Truthfully, I do it out of convenience. I get people all the time think, oh, you're trying to use your, you know, your prosthetics as this prop to, to do people something say in politics. Too. People say it all the time. Uh, opponents in, in politics oh will say God. that. The, you know, and I tell people, listen, it's just for me. I try to use common sense in what I do. So my feet don't bend. My legs really don't bend that much. So I always tell people, try putting on a pair of pants while your shoes are still on uh, with your foot turned 90 degrees and see how it works out for you. So at a certain point, I stopped struggling with it and said, why do I do this? Wear why don't I just start wearing yeah. shorts? And the truth of the matter is, my pants end at the same place as most people, which is at the end of my limbs. You know, yeah. I've seen I, you do Instagram videos right. describing your eye, too. Yeah. For me, it's also a practicality issue. Uh, people know what's going on if you're wearing a patch. When I wear glass eyes, which I do enjoy wearing because I have like 12 of them, you know, I've, I've revealed them slowly over time and I have more to reveal. On social media. Right, right. Uh, but with the patch on, people are less likely to say, hey, Dan, like on my right side, like put their hand out to shake my hand. You know, they still do it, honestly. But at least with the patch on, it's like, hey, I can't see you. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not being rude. I just can't see you. Uh, also, when I'm on camera all the time, people are taking pictures the glass eye, whether it's a natural-looking eye or the seal trident that I normally wear, it doesn't look right in, in cameras and videos. The patch just, it's, it's an aesthetic reason. Gotcha. Um, you Let's are... Say, you know, this is an important point, though, for both of us. When you think about our, our brothers that were injured in different ways, it can be easier for guys like Dan and I because people can look at us and they know where we need help. They, oh, you need a cane, you need a shoulder. Uh, you know, maybe uh, you have difficulty seeing out of one side or you can't see the same thing. For a lot of our friends, the difficulty is people don't know where they need assistance or, or what the difficulty is because their wounds are less visible. And yeah. for some ways, it's a little bit easier, honestly. Well, special thanks to Dan and Brian for spending a day uh, with me, putting up with me. And then we did it on television. And we have the extended version you just heard uh, for radio. And uh, Dan's book is a bestseller. you got to go pick it up to really understand who he is and where he's come from. And Brian Mast is going to be a player in Florida for a long time. Meanwhile, uh, don't forget to pick up uh, Tom Shoot. I almost said Thomas Jefferson, Triple E Pirates. You can get that too, but also pick up my new one, Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers. It is uh, now out on paperback. It includes how Sam worked with Abe to try to keep Texas out of the war. show like no other it's brian kilmeade here on this sacred ground abraham lincoln reimagined america itself here a president of the united states spoke of the price of division and the meaning of sacrifice
And he taught us this, a house divided could not stand. That is a great and timeless truth. Today, once again, we are a house divided. But that, my friends, can no longer be. We are facing too many crises. That is a little Joe Biden speech at Gettysburg. He's trying to symbolize what I think we can agree on. The country's pretty divided and dug in. And even if you say, well, the president uh, of the United States lost to Joe Biden, 73 million people thought the president should be president for another four years. And maybe 78 million, we'll try to get a final tally, thought Joe Biden should be president. But he didn't actually earn it. He just wasn't Donald Trump. And what I say by earning it, you can't say he campaigned. You can't say he was strong in the stump. You can't say he had a penetrating message. He spent the whole time denying that he had the message of the left. And he wasn't Donald Trump. Well, does that apply today? And uh, can we learn anything from the anniversary of the Gettysburg speech? Uh, let's find out. Let's speak to John Cribb, the author of the brand new book, Old Abe, which Vice President Pence read among the people to endorse and said it was the best book on Lincoln he ever read. Uh, and Mark Levin read some of it uh, on his show, on his radio show. Uh, joining us now is John Cribb. John, welcome. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I'm working on a, a book right now with Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, how their lives overlapped and what they've meant to the country. So I'm reading as much Lincoln as oh, possible. Great. Yeah, so right. I, I know you can appreciate it. I mean, you appreciate the more you read about Lincoln, the more you appreciate him. But yeah, you made this a novel, correct? Yes, I did. I made it a novel. I really wanted to try to bring him alive uh, for, for people. So I, I wrote it as a historical novel. And how hard was that? <laughs> well, it, I, you know, I got the idea for the book in 2006, and it's just out now. My wife teases me. She says, you know, John, it only took four years to fight the Civil War. It took you, you know, more than three times the length of the war to write this <laughs> stern book. But it was a part-time job. I mean, I was putting my full-time job. But uh, it, it involved a ton of research, but I loved research, so I, I loved every minute of it. So when you talk about the, the country divided, first, before we talk about today, let's talk about then. People think it was the North and South were divided on slavery, but not because the North walked away from it, because they didn't need it, correct? Yes, that's right. And, you know, there was a, there was a feeling that slavery was eventually going to come to an end, and, and that's the way Lincoln thought going into the war. He was more of an anti-slavery man uh, than a, uh, an abolitionist. But at any rate, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, th th that was the most divided time. In our country's history. Now, we may be living in the next most divided time now, sometimes I think. But that was the most divided time. True. And what you had is, too, a president who comes to power and already states are leaving before he gets to Washington, which is essentially an right. enemy territory. Think about that. Congratulations. Right. You are president of the United States. Good luck trying to get South Carolina back. Uh, yeah. And, and, every, and everything and, you know, else. Can you imagine this? I mean, you can imagine it. You lived it. But can you put that in perspective for our listeners? Yes, it was. And one more thing, the listeners should be aware of is that Lincoln did not get one single vote in the Lower South when he ran for president. And I don't mean a single electoral vote; he didn't get a single vote in the whole entire South because they wouldn't put his name on the ballot. You couldn't even vote for him. Uh, so that's how that's how divided it was. Uh, but when he he so when he steps up to the podium 
at Gettysburg 157 years ago today. Uh, that's one of the things he's facing uh, is this, this division and this cataclysmic fight that's uh, that's erupted over uh, how to how to whether the country's going to hang together or not and whether you know whether democracy is going to be snuffed out or not. And what's interesting is he does come to compromise to much to the chagrin of many uh, like Frederick Douglass who want him to go and say, here's my inaugural speech and goodbye slavery and you better come back here. Uh, renegade states, he says, hey, listen, come back. We're one. I'm not going to make you give up your slaves. We can talk about this. What deal do I have to make to keep the country together? So that's how desperate he was to preserve the union. That's exactly right. He he told the Southern states in his first inaugural address, he said, I will not disturb my slavery in the states where they exist. His insistence was that it not be allowed to spread out of the Southern slave states into the Western territories. And that really is what triggered the war. But yes, you're right. I mean, the Union, you know, Lincoln loved the Union. He loved this country. He, he was fiercely dedicated uh, to the idea of the Union, and he was fiercely, fiercely dedicated uh, to the founding principles uh, that made this country. And determined to keep it together, and it's not going to be destroyed on his watch. And the founding fathers were actually right. real. I guess the only link, the person who knew Washington and Lincoln was John Quincy Adams, and he was serving in Congress, right? That's right. Uh, and Lincoln and, and John Quincy Adams were actually in Congress together, and uh, John Quincy Adams died uh, while Lincoln was serving in, in Congress. It is one term in Congress. So Lincoln, you know, Lincoln had that connection. He called them, he said they were iron men, uh, those looking back uh, to the founders, which I guess was one, one generation ahead of John Quincy Adams. But he had a, what, what, you know, a very close connection, closer than we do today, to the founding fathers. But can you explain before we get to the Gettysburg Address, first off, why Lincoln was the perfect person? He grew in the role, but his his love of language and his dedication to reading classics allowed him to become this great speaker, storyteller, and writer, don't you feel? Yes, yeah, isn't it wonderful? You know, he grew up on the, on the frontier where, you know, his books were so scarce, he, he used to say, my best, best friend is a man who could get me a book, and he would literally walk miles through the Indiana woods to lay his hands on a, a book if he could. But he, you know, by the grace of God, he read some great stuff uh, like the Bible, and it's he, he soaked it up. And he becomes, over the years, he hones his language. If you read his earlier writings, they're not, you know, quite, quite as good as they are the later ones with the Gettysburg Address. But over the years, he, he hones them. Uh, he's very careful about honing them and becomes this amazing uh, speaker. And, I, you know, at the Gettysburg Address, I think he gives what is the greatest speech ever given on American soil. And and maybe we should talk about that. So f- just to build up a little bit, in the beginning it wasn't, hey, uh, I'm, I'm the president now. You guys are going to leave. Let me free the slaves and fight you. He didn't think the North was ready to get rid of uh, slavery entirely. He knew the country wasn't ready. Much like today, yeah. we want to accelerate. We look at the 60s and say, how could you keep people in separate uh, water fountains and, and different parts of the buses and different schools? They were still a little hazy about, you know, we we're uh, about where we're heading as a country, even though the rest of the world was giving up slavery a few decades ahead of us. And he had to wait by yeah. this time until the country was ready. And in early losses mm-hmm. and a harder struggle with the South and then realizing what he was up against and there would be no tomorrow and this was going to be a bloody affair left him almost no choice. And when he picked the perfect time to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Yes, you're exactly right. He early on in the war, he realized that if he had tried to make it a war over slavery, 
a lot of people in the north would have just revolted. I mean, there was there were a lot of southern sympathizers in the north. Uh, there were a lot of people that thought it would that rather than tear the country apart, just this best to leave this thing alone. Uh, there were uh, he he would have lost the border states. And frankly, if he tried to make it a war about slavery at the beginning of the war, he was worried a lot of the northern Union soldiers would simply walk off the battlefield. They were going to fight to hold the Union together, but they weren't going to fight to free to free black people. Uh, but by the time he issues the Emancipation Proclamation, of course he he uh, issues the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation right after the Battle of Antietam. In September of 1862, after what was a, a Pyrrhic victory there at Antietam, uh, but he uses it as the occasion and then the, signs the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. He knew that by that time, public mood had shifted in the North, and the time was right to begin to pivot and make it a war not just about saving the Union, but also about uh, freeing the slaves and preserving our founding principles. And we believe, and he believed, that it was a matter of us living up to the Constitution, not changing it. Exactly. Right? It isn't, well, America better evolve. Yeah. No, we have to live up to the documents. It, it's not yes. that the documents have to change with us, although we did exactly. obviously yeah. have amendments. Yes. Yes, and his favorite uh, founding document, of course, was the Declaration of Independence, which is why he starts Gettysburg addressing fourscore and seven years ago. That's 87 years. He used to track 87 from 1863 when he gave the address. That takes you back to 1776, the year of the Declaration. And when he when he quotes the nation, when he says a nation conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, that's pretty much straight out of the Declaration. So what he's saying is, we uh, we have to dedicate ourselves uh, to living up to those principles in the Declaration of Independence and our founding, uh, doc, other founding documents. That's our job, and that's what makes us a great country. What makes us one people, and every generation has to do that. Uh, we're with John Cribb. He wrote uh, of Old Abe, and we're talking now, building up to the Gettysburg Address. So the war starts turning to the north, and it's just out of attrition. And then Lincoln makes the gutsy call of allowing African Americans to fight for their freedom, literally take guns and arms and fight uh, yeah. and, and fight against the South. And it, it just becomes clear this is going to be our victory, but doesn't mean there's not a lot of blood to be spilled yet. What happened at Gettysburg leading up to the president's speech? Well, of course, that was the most cataclysmic uh, battle of the uh, Civil War in early July of 1863, uh, Lee's second invasion of the North, and uh, and Meade manages to turn him back. I, there was a lot of thought that if, if Lee had actually had managed to win that battle, that uh, the North basically would have said en- enough is enough and uh, would have would have let the South go ahead and sue for peace. Uh, but the North does win. And uh, after the, the battle, you know, there was 50,000 casualties, maybe around 8,000 people killed. We're not sure. Uh, but the, the, the armies would hastily dig, you know, very shallow graves and, and put the bodies in them. Uh, but then somebody had to come along and do something with them. Later on, there was no federal authority to do that. So it was basically left to the townspeople of, of Gettysburg uh, to figure out what to do with this, this horrible you know, situation on their hands. Uh, so the idea comes up to have a national cemetery. It's really several states uh, you know, coordinated it. Um, and so they've established this, this uh, ceremony, uh, this, this cemetery. And Lincoln is invited uh, to give a few appropriate remarks uh, at the dedication of this uh, cemetery where about 3,500 of these uh, fallen soldiers are going to be buried. So you say uh, in your book, I did not know this, that Mary Todd Lincoln did not want her husband to go to Gettysburg to give this speech. Yes, that's right. Their youngest son, Tad, uh, came down with a fever uh, right before uh, Lincoln was supposed to go. And, of course, they'd lost two sons uh, 
earlier on, they lost their son, Eddie, when he was not quite four years old in 1850 when they were living in Springfield of uh, consumption or what we would call tuberculosis. And then uh, their son, Willie, dies in the White House in February of 1862 of uh, typhoid fever. So she's terrified they're going to lose another another son. So when, when Tad comes down with a fever, uh, she really begs Lincoln not to go. But the, a doctor, the attending doctor, Dr. Stone, uh, told Lincoln that it was it would be okay for him to go. And he, he thought the occasion was too important to not go. So he goes. And on the way, yeah. is it true he writes the speech? No, I, he may have read a little bit of it, but, but, but most authorities agree that, I mean, he's definitely, he, he told uh, one of his aides that he read about half of it before he left for Washington. Um, and it was probably not a good time to do it on the, on the train. Uh, but when he got to Gettysburg, he stayed in the, the house of a, a family, the Wills family. There's a man named David Wills, a local attorney, who's one of the, the drivers of establishing the cemetery. And uh, he finishes writing the Gettysburg Address uh, that night, and then he gets up the next morning, makes a you know, few more changes, and then uh, copies out a, a fresh copy before he gives it. But he'd been thinking about it for a long, long time. Why do you, what stood out about it, and was it obvious to everyone there that this was one of the greatest speeches ever written? I think, well, of course, he, he famously was so short that a lot of people really thought he was just beginning to get going when he when he stopped the speech hall because the speaker before him, Edward Everett, had spoken for two hours. Um, uh, but the reaction to the speech, even there that day, the crowd, after a momentary, I think, silence because they weren't sure he was 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 uh, finished, uh, was thunderous applause. And it pretty pretty soon it became clear this is a really great speech. Now the press was uh, every bit as partisan, if not more partisan back then, just uh, today. You know there were Republican newspapers, Democratic newspapers, and the Democratic newspapers, of course, savaged it. Uh, the Chicago Times said that the, uh, the, t- the cheek of every American should tingle with shame at the silly, flat, dishwatery utterances of the president at Gettysburg. And the London Times attacked it and said it was a bad speech. But other newspapers uh, like the uh, Springfield Republican in Massachusetts said it was a perfect gem of a speech. And people pretty quickly began to weigh in and realize that this was, this was a really great speech. What do you like about it? Well, I love, of course, uh, the language. Uh, first of all, it's just so Lincoln-esque. It's, uh, it's just it's so 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 beautifully written, but I like the the call to each generation in that that speech uh, to take up the the rededication uh, to those those founding principles uh, because it really is something that has to be done by by every by every generation, and I like Lincoln's uh, his his vision that you know this country. Uh, millions and millions around the world were looking to and still do look to this country uh, as the embodiment of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So the crescendo uh, building uh, to that, I think, is is just gorgeous in the speech. And that's uh, all in your book, uh, Old Abe and the Gettysburg Address. Go look it up today. Uh, It really matters. And sadly, it applies a lot about coming together and and putting your issues and your disagreements aside and move in a common uh, in a common direction, um, and I think it's more important now than ever. My last question to you, real quick: If John Wilkes Booth doesn't kill Abraham Lincoln, we are a so much better country. I think he's done yeah. more damage to the future of the country than anybody else, more than any single yeah. man. Yes, I think that's that's a, that's a, a very good point. I think um, Lincoln, uh, towards the end of the war, he really did have his mind on true. Uh, reconstruction. And, uh, you know, he he started out his administration in the first inaugural address by saying, we are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passions may have strained. It must not break 
the bonds of perfection. And then he ends uh, with this, or he, when, when he's giving a second inaugural address, uh, with the beginning of his second term, you know, he's, he says he wants the country to act with malice toward none and with charity for all. So he, the, all, the whole way through, he was always calling uh, for the union and for unity because he, he knew we were all Americans in the end. He did. There was no celebrating in the second inaugural because he wanted us to all come back together. There can't be any losers. Right. Um, Thanks so much. Now I know why uh, the vice president thinks your book is the best Lincoln book ever. It's called Old Abe. Uh, Thanks so much. I appreciate you being being with us. John Cribb, great job. Thank you, Brian. You got it. Uh, Back with some calls. Just a moment. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I, I don't want to short, give short to any calls, so let's find out if there's indeed more to know. More to know. You guys remember Home Alone 1, right? Remember Home Alone 2? Maybe you didn't watch it, but Donald Trump was in it. So interesting. They said, you can use my building, but you have to put me in the movie. And the director thought, oh, that's ridiculous. I'll put him in, but I'm going to cut him out. What happened, Allison, when they tried to cut him out? So during the screening, they showed the scene, and after the, Trump came on the screen, everyone cheered. But do you want to hear the quick little, like, five-second interaction? Excuse me, where's the lobby? Down the hall and to the left. Thanks. And the crowd went wild. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Next, Dolly Parton partly funded Moderna's COVID vaccine. Uh, the country music star tells that their first-ever accident, uh, a car accident in October, was minor but left her bruised and sore enough to seek medical advice at Vanderbilt, where she met uh, the doctor, the physician, professor of surgery, and that doctor working on the, the vaccine, and she wrote a $1 million donation to Vanderbilt for that research. See, so the accident in 2013 then paid off down the road because she was so impressed, she gave them a million bucks. Wow, and then she also has her amusement park. A very quiet success story. She was an actor, singer, personality, variety show. So talented. Right. Reminds me a lot of myself. I've been compared to her a lot. Especially the body. I know. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Hope you're having a great Thanksgiving. I know it's a little different. Even if you put on the parade, everything looks different. Where are the people? Nice to see a balloon. Uh, This hour, we're going to be bringing you Brad Meltzer, interview with him about his brand new book, great historian, wonderful speaker. Lynn Cheney, too, got a great history, history, uh, historical book, looking at all those great uh, founding fathers from Virginia, from Jefferson to Washington to Madison to Monroe. But now we're going to talk to Jay Winnick. Keep in mind, we're trying to figure out what was happening with the president having to go to Walter Reed. We didn't know about the virus, how sick he actually was and wasn't. So Jay Winnick, the, uh, the noted historian, author of 1860 and 1945, was able to come on with us and put it all in perspective. And I think that's important for him to share that moment. So let's relive it. Brian, always great to be here. Hey, Jake, we put this in perspective. Some of the, uh, the information come out of Walter Reed. People are outraged that they weren't getting all the facts right away. Should they be? No. If anything, you see that the norm with presidents is that they have health problems. And more often than not, they're the picture of deception about how they're doing. And it's unthinkable by today's standards. In many ways, 
what's happening with President Trump is he's actually far more transparent than most presidents have been in the past. If we take FDR, for example, he's, he's the classic example. It turns out that unknown to the American people, he was paralyzed by polio and he was in a wheelchair since 1921. The American people never knew that they were electing, not once, not twice, but four times over an invalid. There was a gentleman's agreement, it turns out, between the press and FDR, never to show pictures of his shriveled legs. Not once was this agreement ever violated. Again, remarkable if you think about it by today's standards. Also, think about this. Didn't he run for re-election and he knew he was terminal for the last time? He knew he wasn't going to make it through? Well, he pretty much knew it, but he did it anyway. In fact, if we, if we back up this a little bit, in 1944, with two of the most profound events of the war about to happen, the invasion of D-Day, as well as FDR's election for a fourth term, it turns out FDR was deeply ill. He had a hacking cough that wouldn't go away, a fever that wouldn't quit. He could barely sign his name on documents. And in fact, several times he had been found in the Oval Office having fallen out of his chair by the Secret Service. And his eyes were glassy and he could barely eat. And when asked how he felt, he would say, I feel like hell. And not unlike Trump, he was taken to Bethesda Naval for a full workup by Dr. Bruin. And it turned out he had heart disease and if changes weren't made, he'd be dead within a year. And he was dead by April 1945. And what did the press do? Well, the White House arranged a press conference between FDR and the press. And it turned out to be nothing but a dog and pony show. FDR smiled and he joked and he patted his tummy and he said, I feel much better. And the next day, the New York Times reported, FDR's color has returned. He's looking well. They asked no follow-up questions. And the same with the persistent rumors, as you were saying, Brian, about his illness when he ran for president for a fourth time. And what about Woodrow Wilson? This guy was in the middle. He was president of the last pandemic. He got it. He got the Spanish flu. We never knew it. Oh, and not only that, I mean, here's Wilson just fascinating. He's cold, he's brusque, he was arrogant, and he was the man who governed America through the Spanish flu in the end of World War I. And it turns out in his case, his great passion was the League of Nations, which he hoped would bring peace to the world, and he tirelessly campaigned for it, going from state to state and country to country. But what happened was in 1919, he had a stroke that left him partially paralyzed. The country never knew about it in a ruse unthinkable, by again, by today's standards. It turned out that his wife, Edith Wilson, basically ran the country until 1921. And Thomas Marshall, the vice president, never stepped in. I guess of note, the 25th Amendment had not yet been ratified, so there was some murkiness. But could you imagine the president's wife running the country? Dwight Eisenhower worshipped in war, and as president, cut one. President Eisenhower, on a vacation in Denver, appeared the picture of health, enjoying his favorite sport on a sparkling western day. Planning to return to Washington shortly, he seemed well-rested. Then, to Fitzsimmons Army Hospital, the president was rushed, suffering from a sudden heart attack. In the Denver church where he worshipped, in churches and in synagogues everywhere, a nation joined in prayer for its president. Vice President Nixon faced new responsibilities, and Americans watched the hospital room in Denver. But we didn't find out about that heart attack right away, did we? No, we didn't. And, um, and then it's, it's, it's really funny. Eventually, when we did find out, um, Eisenhower, to allay any concerns, I mean, of course, remember, Eisenhower was the great general who presided over the D-Day victory, as well as the surrender of the Nazis. Well, he wore a red shirt emblazoned with the words, much better, thanks. 
Next, uh, Ike, and, uh, Ike and his wife, Mammy, returned to Washington. Here's how it sounded. Cut to. The Columbine brought President Eisenhower back to a cheering Washington in November. It was 48 days after his heart attack that the president stepped from the plane, leaner but well along the road to recovery. The Capitol's welcome sign was out, and it was a day of celebration. Crowds lined Pennsylvania Avenue to hail the president's return. So this could be this could be something that you could get momentum from because people say, well, he's human, right? Absolutely. What it does is it he becomes human. He kind of touches the soul and the hearts of American people. And the American people then see you when you're sick in a very different limelight. I mean, they can identify with it. And, and, and I think it can create a bond that can really kind of shift the momentum of a political race. Who can uh, most of our listeners can remember this. Cut three. Shots were fired. Apparently at President Reagan, as he was coming out of the Washington Hilton Hotel this afternoon, the president was not hit. He was wounded. My God. He was, the president was hit. He is in stable condition. All this information, but the president was hit. And we found out it ricocheted off the door. It hit him, and he did collapse in the hospital. But um, I'll tell you what, uh, Jay Winnick, we didn't find out about that for a long time. No, there was a lot of confusion, and it, it was a, a kind of an incredible incident when you think about it. Reagan himself thought not that he was hit by a bullet, but that he somehow cracked a rib. But they made a, a, a snap judgment at the time that they weren't going to take him back to the White House, but to the emergency room at George Washington University Hospital. And there, at that point, it was fascinating. Ronald Reagan insisted upon walking in on his own accord. Of course, when he was taken into emergency surgery, he quipped to his surgeon, quote, I hope you are a Republican. And the surgeon responded, today, Mr. President, we are all Republicans. But the world didn't know just how close that Reagan had really come to death. And then at the same time, temporarily, the business of governing fell to George Bush, who was on an airplane flying back from Fort Worth. But as it turns out, there was a great deal of confusion when Secretary of State Al Haig announced from the White House, that he was in charge. In fact, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Who is making the decisions for the government right now? Who's making the decisions? Constitutionally, gentlemen, you have the president, the vice president, and the secretary of state in that order. And should the president decide he wants to transfer the helm to the vice president, he, he will do so. As of now, I am in control here in the White House, pending return of the vice president and in, in close touch with him. So he was in control. A little bit of confusion there, right? Yeah, there was a lot of confusion. And, and when you remember, this was at the height of the Cold War when the possibility of war and peace hung in the balance and the possibility of nuclear war actually hung in the balance. So the stakes really were kind of very high. Lastly, uh, we did not know about JFK's challenges. He took multiple medications. He had an extremely bad back, right? I think this is fascinating. The, all the world thought they knew JFK well, that he was the picture of vitality and health, and they were always seeing the newsreels and the photos of him, of him and the Kennedys playing football in Martha's Vineyard. But it was all a sham. It turns out that JFK had Addison's disease, a disorder of the adrenal glands, and he had this debilitating back pain. And aided by his doctor in the White House, and by the way, his doctor was a bit of a quack, JFK became addicted to a cocktail of painkillers that affected mental functioning. And when you consider that he was negotiating for the U.S. during the, the 13 tense days of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when nuclear war and peace hung in the balance, you can see just how high the stakes were and how dangerous this was in the nuclear age. Once again, 
All this was kept from the public. Wait, Jay, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that that was kept from the public. We don't find out till later. Reagan shot, don't find out till later. FDR was crippled. We don't find out till later. But yet with Trump, if they didn't find out about whether they, we still don't know whether his lung function is back 110 percent or not. There's outrage. Have we always had this outrage on the other side? I always used to remember there was a sense of unity, at least for a moment. That seems gone. Yeah, no, it, it, it really is kind of unfortunate that it does seem gone because in the past, there, the benefit of the doubt was invariably given to the president who was sick and who was suffering. And now, nowadays, I mean, I would argue that in, in Trump's case, while there have been some bumps in the road and they haven't gotten everything just perfect, um, they've been pretty, pretty transparent, which is impressive by historical standards, because by historical standards, virtually all other presidents have not been very transparent. Yeah, that's uh, it's kind of a it's kind of a shame. And also you talk about William McKinley was shot and they said it was pneumonia. It wasn't pneumonia. There was some deception there. And we didn't know about Lincoln's health either. Lincoln had was suffering from bouts of depression. Oh, yeah. Lincoln was roaming the halls of the White House, his, his head, his head down to his chest, his hands behind his back. And he was just be muttering over and over again, saying, I must have relief from this anxiety or it will kill me. And he was so depressed and so exhausted and worn and weary from the wear and tear of, of the Civil War that he actually lost 30 pounds. And he looked so bad that the New York Times would later editorialize that they couldn't see how he would even make it through a second term. Of course, he didn't make it, but that was because of an assassin's bullet from John Wilkes Booth. Yeah, of course. And in the in the big picture with Lincoln, we didn't know a lot, but then I understood it. The country was actually divided in half, but also goes to show you that everyone's got challenges. Also, with Lincoln, he's dealing with the loss of his uh, of his son. Correct? Oh yeah, it was it was terrible for him. I mean, it it, it left him disconsolate, and and even more so his wife, who was was so depressed and so so hurt by the whole affair. That um, that at one point Lincoln actually said to to Mary, he he, he pointed to an, an insane asylum not far from the White House, and he said, "If you keep this up, I'm going to have to put you there." That's how depressed everyone was. Pick up Jay Winnick's 18 uh, April 1865 and 1944. They're great. Jay, always great to have you on. Brian, always great. Always great to be on your show, and uh, and my son, B.C., who's your biggest fan, says hello. All right. Tell him I'm back at him. I look forward to seeing you both again soon. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. mouth to your ears. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. Brad Meltzer joins us now, best-selling author and host of Lost History on History 2, H2, author of two new books out today, I Am Benjamin Franklin and I Am Anne Frank for Real Little Kids as they make their way through uh, preschool, kindergarten, and first, second grade. Uh, Brad, congratulations. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. You've been the biggest proponent of our kids series about history, and I owe you a thank you for that. Yeah, you must be horrified when you look at the curriculum in not private schools but public schools and what's happening and the big push to change America's history and apologize for it. Um, you know, listen, uh, everyone's 
says, oh, I hate when history is rewritten. History is always rewritten. Um, but what I don't like is when you put your feelings in there. There are groups that have been marginalized that we need to hear from. But you don't have to also be embarrassed of democracy. Um, you know, the reason I write a book, people are like, why you write these kids' books? I'm like, I want our kids to know the heroes of the founders. I wrote I Am George Washington for that reason. I Am Abraham Lincoln, obviously, a later day I wrote. You know, the new book is literally I Am Benjamin Franklin. I can't be any clearer that our kids need to embrace these amazing messages that our founders had for us. And the only way we can do that is we've got to tell their stories to our kids. The uh, 1619 Project won Pulitzer Prizes and wants to rewrite our history, get rid of July 4th and get rid of 1776 and think 1619 when the first slave ship came here. It goes on to say that we actually fought the Revolutionary War to keep slavery. Not true. That is not our founding. That was not even the case. 1619 is not even accurate. But with it came a handbook for school curriculums across the country. This was a double-edged, two-tier plan from the New York Times. Yeah, I saw, you know, and the, and the amazing part was, is that I'm sure you saw the same thing I did. The New York Times had one of its own writers say, you know, we, we messed up here. Brett Stevens. Um, we can't be we can't be recreating July 4th. That was a giant error. Um, that is the founding of the country. And um, and that's what, you know, this, you know, the op ed, I, I got full credit to them for realizing maybe we took this one a step too far. But it was fascinating to watch historians, um, you know, McPherson, one of the great historians out there quickly came in and said, you know, you need context. You can't just tell one-sided story. It goes both ways, conservative and, and, and the liberal side. You can't just tell your side and not give the context of what else is happening. In the same way, you know, you have people who yell at me say, oh, how can you say Ben Franklin? He owned slaves. He did. You're right. He also spent the last years of his life realizing, you know what, we got to do better and became the president of an organization to abolish slavery. So is Ben Franklin good? Is he bad? Or is he like the rest of us? He's complicated. We all are. And, and our history is complicated. That's not a bad thing. That's the beautiful part of it is that we get to now show people that full, rich texture and, and make people realize you don't just whitewash it. You don't just you know, take away what you don't like, but you've you got to give it context. Yeah, Benjamin Franklin, wood-burning stove, fire department, uh, not bad. Uh, he has uh, the, his inventions of electricity, post office, are genius, but, and he's nothing if not diverse and a deep thinker and helped France, uh, convince France to get into the war that really formed our country. Besides that, not much on the resume. What about Anne Frank? Yeah, and, and let's also, by the way, just so before we leave Ben Franklin, rewrote, rewrote Thomas Jefferson in, as he drafted the Declaration of Independence, you know, Thomas Jefferson famously wrote when he was writing that first draft of the Declaration, we hold these truths um, to be uh, undeniable. Instead of being undeniable, he said, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And Ben Franklin said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That's Ben Franklin's edit. Um, and Frank, though, listen, look at the world right now. Uh, Anti-Semitism is at a 40-year high. We have Kids out there, millennials, they said a study last week, barely know about the Holocaust. Basic facts. Our kids need hope right now. And the best way to teach that is with Anne Frank, the little girl who hid from the Nazis in an attic for two years, but still believed that people were good at heart. And I want my kids to know that even the darkest places, you can still find light. That's what hope is. It burns within you, and when you turn it on, nothing turns it off. So I am Anne Frank, and I am Benjamin Franklin are there to give those messages of hope and resilience and creativity at a time when 
our kids need it more than ever. Right. And where do we get these books? You can find them on Amazon. You can find them in any bookstore. Um, and, and for me, what I love is, you know, in all the stuff of the pandemic, I didn't even tell you this. Two of our books started selling more than any others. I am Martin Luther King Jr. I am George Washington. I am Abraham Lincoln. Right now, the culture is taking our I Am series and realizing we need heroes. Our kids are anxious, and they need to be uh, taught how to fight back. They need to show what real leaders right. look like. And I love that they're finding George Washington. And, and I get Abraham a lot of Lincoln. questions, Brad, that people say, what, do I, what books do I get for my kids and my little kids, uh, too? So for a 5-year-old, it would be perfect. Lastly, ugly yeah, news five, last yeah, night. Yeah, 5 to 12 years old is Yeah, perfect, ugly right. news last night. They took down the statues of Abraham Lincoln. They took it down in uh, Frederick Douglass, my goodness, in Rochester a couple of months ago. And then they ripped down Teddy Roosevelt. Are you horrified by this? Listen, uh, my last two books were about Abraham Lincoln, and we just did on the kids' side a book about Teddy Roosevelt. Like, you don't tear down Lincoln. You don't tear down Roosevelt. I can't be any clearer. Um, and there's no excuse for violence, right? I mean, that's why we need Anne Frank. That's why I wrote the book is to show people this is where violence gets us. This is That, that doesn't get you anything you want. And I, I despise the fact. I mean, you know, I, I will say it. Till I'm blue in the face. Abraham Lincoln is the greatest president we've had. No question. I love George Washington. I wrote a book about him too, but Abraham Lincoln right. just is always the soft Brad, spot for me. You can He's follow him at Brad Meltzer. Brad Meltzer, congratulations on Benjamin Franklin and I am Anne Frank. You're interested in it? Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. This is an interesting thing. He may never concede. He doesn't have to concede. Uh, the thing about the American Constitution is that it doesn't actually require the sitting president to do anything one way or the other. On January 20th, Donald Trump's term ends and Joe Biden's, I believe, will begin. Uh, the president doesn't have to do anything. He can't interfere with that. Uh, so that's John Yu, used to work in the Bush administration, talking about what the Constitution says. Uh, Lynn Cheney knows all about that. She's a best-selling author, historian herself. Her new book is called The Virginia Dynasty, Four Presidents, and the Creation of the American Nation and How It All Started. And I was just wondering if you're getting deja vu through all of this, because what you experienced when uh, you and your husband were vice president trying to see if you beat Al Gore or not in Florida. And constitutionally, you do know the history about this changing, this handing over of power. Well, deja vu a little in that uh, things drag on and on, but I think John Yu is is correct um, that uh, the president doesn't have to concede, but we're going to have a new president on January 20th, so this is a little bit more defined than uh, uh, the situation was in 2000, where, you know, we were just sort of hoping somebody would decide this and finally the Supreme Court stepped in. Yeah, we did. And and before we get your book, your book is now out. It's called uh, Virginia Dynasty, Four Presidents and the Creation of the American Nation. But I just want to get your take. Uh, in history, uh, there's one family and, and two presidents who didn't show up for the handover of power. And it is John Adams and John Quincy Adams, right? Yeah, it's uh, the John Adams and Jefferson uh, one is uh, something that was in my book. So, um I am familiar with it. Uh, and part of the problem was that uh, Jefferson was John Adams' vice president. It was the first time in history that uh, 
men of different parties occupied the uh, presidency and the vice presidency. So feelings between them weren't good, and Jefferson really began to uh, organize an opposition. So you can see why Adams was mad. He was also mad because uh, things he had an October surprise. Alexander Hamilton, who was uh, a member of the same party as his, Alexander Hamilton wrote a letter saying how bad John Adams was and uh, how he didn't think he should be president. So he was a very bitter man. Yes, and they played such vital roles in American history. It also shows uh, they ended up being uh, friends again, never saw each other again, but used friends together uh, writing letters back and forth that are that are still been published and been out. So, Lynn, when did you realize that this would be a great topic, the Virginia dynasty, looking at Monroe, Washington, Jefferson, and Madison? Well, when uh, I was working on the Madison book, it was clear how uh, dependent he was on the friendship uh, with the other two, or the relationships is better to put it, Um, and uh, indeed how they were dependent upon him. So it it just seemed a good title. It was a little bit about... uh, group dynamics, uh, how people interact with one another, how they affect one another. And, you know, part of it is when you have a a high-pressured group like this, high-powered group, all these intellects, they they vie with one another. And uh, so that makes a a difference. I love the way in your open you describe them. And the first person to really humanize the Founding Fathers, Harry Truman wrote a book about history, not about him. And he talked about Jefferson the way you did. He's a tall guy, long-limbed with reddish hair. Madison, more black all the time, kind of a little guy. James Monroe, the last of the Virginia dynasty, right? And the last president to wear knee bridges. But this guy, (laughs) totally underappreciated James. I know you love James Madison. But James Monroe, too, a war fighter, an ambassador, and a future president, and a former uh, secretary of war. And then George Washington always had a problem with the fact that he was great-looking, he was strong, a great horseman. But he always felt somewhat uh, unworthy because he didn't have the education of the others. Can you explain that, even in researching it? Well, it's true. He called it his uh, defective education, uh, meaning he hadn't gone to the uh, schools that uh, were so highly regarded that the other three men did. He, though, tried very hard to make up for it with uh, self-education. Part of the problem was that uh, Washington was really an 18th century man. He was uh, a man of the times when the leaders of the world were monarchs, and he understood fully that this uh, country was going to be a republic and not a monarchy. But his actions were old-fashioned. He didn't like people to disagree with him. And uh, when they did, he regarded it as somewhat uh, subversive. He, in fact, um, uh, wanted people to elect their politicians, elect their representatives, and then go home and let them be until it was time to be elected again. And neither Madison nor Jefferson nor Monroe thought this was a decent way to run a republic. So the, the breach was their building that uh, set up the animosity not only between Washington and Monroe, but the other two as well. So you talk about how it, be, how it came, their education, how they felt about this idea of freedom and liberty, how they were different but exceptional. 
Lynn, when you were done with this piece, looking at these four men gathered in so close in proximity, in the right place at the right time in the right era, do you ever look back and say, is this just a coincidence that gave birth to this former super, this current superpower? Well, you know, if Washington hadn't been so angry with the other three, I'm pretty sure he would have uh, said it was Providence taking a hand. Because it's just it's astonishing to have this kind of leadership come from a relatively small area in, um, in a place that was regarded as a backwater by most of the world. If they hadn't been talented, you know, uh, this couldn't have happened. They had innate talent. But they also had opportunity, just the most amazing opportunity to build a new kind of country, one where the ideals of uh, liberty and justice were were at the base. Now, as I point out in the book, um, they did not uh, they did not have the uh, luxury ability. That's a much better word. They couldn't they couldn't figure out how to. Uh, get rid of slavery entirely as, as justice demanded. And so they, they lived these lives of contradiction. But if you think about it, I, I, most of us would certainly be glad they did. They went ahead and established this amazing and remarkable country, uh, despite the fact that uh, they were living lives that, that contradicted its ideals. One of the interesting things I discovered while writing this book was that both Washington and uh, Frederick Douglass, I'm sorry, Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, praised them for expressing the ideals. You know, both men were fully aware, of course, that uh, they held people in bondage, the Virginians did, but they thought that the ideals they expressed were so important and uh, used them to uh, get rid of slavery, to finally accomplish what the Virginians didn't. So I just hope you enjoyed that conversation. To humanize these founding fathers, I think, is so uh, incredibly key. Next, when we come back, we're going to talk about slavery, uh, why it's in our conversation today, what Thomas Jefferson's view of slavery were. I think it's going to surprise you. And then what these uh, men did back then and what they all had in common. They had rivalries, but they had one goal, keep America, make America, and then make sure it remains great. This is how they did it. This is who they were. Back in a moment with Lynn Cheney and more on her uh, her daughter and her quest to be maybe president. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Well, you know I have a passion towards history. That's why I love speaking to uh, Lynn Cheney so much. She has uh, written a bunch of books uh, from children's to adults, all about our founding fathers and how we all got started. She also talks uh, blatantly about America's original sin, and that is slavery and Thomas Jefferson. And although he had slaves, and obviously if you go to Monticello, you hear all about it, he never thought it was the right thing to do and thought for sure uh, we were heading towards um, abolishing them. And it started in the north and would work its way down south, culminating in 1865 with the end of the Civil War. So now is more from Lynn Cheney as she looks at American history from a unique perspective, the bonding of our founding fathers. So you, you write in your book, Jefferson called slavery a sin against God, a fatal stain on Virginia. But keep in mind, he was born into it. His his dad had slaves. And to oh, keep sure. yeah to keep this... Uh, plantation going. I'm not making an excuse, but you got to put yourself. This is this was the economic model. 
So they're thinking, how do I get rid of this at the same time not destroy the country and my personal economy? And what I thought was heartening, too, is that Frederick Douglass doesn't say that we have to redo the Constitution and redo our focus. We have to live up to the Constitution, right? He says there was nothing in the Constitution that justified one being being owned by another. And I find that heartening that a man born a slave who escaped to freedom and became this great figure wasn't was able to look at our country from five ten thousand feet, for lack of a better term. No, it was a, a, an amazing observation that is uh, too seldom uh, pointed out today that uh, the very uh, words of the Declaration and the uh, structure of the Constitution uh, were entirely forward-looking. These men were, or they were creating a society better than their own, preparing the way for society better than their own, and you know, that that should be pointed out more often than it is. I appreciate your uh, your explanation. No, you did it. I stole it from you. Um, <laughs> so I, I just wanted, the last thing I wanted to bring up is you know so much about Madison, but Madison wanted to leave a, a, a thought as he was dying. He wanted it read after his death, almost from the grave, almost like wishing us the best, as if the country has to survive. Do you want to give us an idea of what of what Madison, why that was important to him? Well, by this time, of, he died in the 1830s, and in the 1820s, the Missouri Compromise had really lined up uh, the North against the South. Uh, there was no longer any uh, mixing of ideology. All uh, of it was on one side alike and on the other side alike. And he was well aware that uh, this was this was the situation that would uh, would bring on war if somehow um, his con- countrymen didn't uh, heed the advice to uh, to love the Union and uh, to work to preserve it. It was advice, of course, that uh, was futile in the end. Um, slavery was uh, such a ghastly um, practice that you know the North couldn't stand it, and as you say, the South. Uh, was was entrapped in it, and they couldn't figure out how to get out of this uh, net they were caught in. And uh, we didn't end up with this horrible war, but one which created a better nation. Yeah, the quote, the advice nearest to my heart and deepest in my convictions is that the union of the states be cherished and perpetuated. And that was his dying wish because mm-hmm. he worried about what was coming, and he was 100 uh, percent right. But Lincoln citing the founding fathers as he tried to, uh, you know, recalibrate the country and get us back on track. So, Lynn, you did a really important story because a lot of people really have to go and reevaluate our foundation. Because I always thought, think about people like you when they're pulling down statues and judging historical figures. They took down Frederick Douglass's statue. They took down Lincoln's statue, Teddy Roosevelt's statue, let alone the Confederate generals. What are your thoughts about the way we're suddenly looking at historical figures? If they're not perfect by today's standards, they should be torn down. You know, sometimes I think that people don't even understand why they're tearing them down. Now, others say, oh, they held slaves, got to tear those down. But I think there's just such a high degree of uh, not knowing uh, the truth of American history. And uh, it's kind of... uh, no, it's the behavior of the Taliban to be truthful, uh, where where you just want to destroy anything of the past because you think that you know you have it in your power to create a world that is so different. 
And uh, to create a world that's so different, I believe, would would rob us of the ideals that the uh, that the founders propagated. And lastly, Liz, just to bring you up to today, I read this big story about uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, back uh, your daughter, uh, back in leadership mm-hmm. with the Republicans, who now are within on the razor's edge of taking back the majority. And her decision not to run for the Senate in Wyoming, which would have been a layup for her, and yet working, kind of envisioning what your husband, the former vice president, did, who thought about running for president. Maybe perhaps her quickest path towards running for president would be through leadership in the House. Do you believe that she is presidential material, and do you think she wants it? Well, I, I, of course, think she is, um, but it's not the sort of thing she goes around talking about. Um, she's concerned right now with uh, being as good a congressman woman as she uh, can be for the people of Wyoming and, 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 and being able to uh, have a platform, I think, is important to her from which you can talk about uh, national security and other issues that uh, you think are of uh, high concern. You saw early in her that she had the acumen for it. Um, and the, the, I heard about this, but I also read about it, that she was w- with your, your husband and uh, so immersed in his career and in the policies. They almost, they almost mind-melded in their beliefs. <laughs> Probably true. Not, not having been part of that mind-meld and writing about the 18th century, I can't swear to it. But uh, you saw uh, it. Dick certainly enjoys watching her, uh, watching her move through the house, and uh, you know, admiring her skill. She's tough. Who told her the toughness? <laughs> well, you know, she is, but she's not around her family. It's, it's kind of a transformation when she becomes this. Uh, person who can be stern with uh, with people who are uh, uh, acting foolishly. And uh, so, you know, that's part of her. But the other part is that she's an amazing mother um, and an amazing daughter, as my other child, Mary, is too. She Mary has wonderful children and uh, uh, is just a great uh, source, resource to me, a great resource and uh, comfort as children should be. There are no favorites. I get it. I understand it. Uh, and lastly, how is the former vice president? Got the new heart. I saw him a little while ago. He looks great. What is it like? I mean, does he does he have the energy of a 21-year-old? <laughs> well, I think when he got this dog, he thought he did. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's all on you. No, no, no. He's in charge of getting up in the middle of the night and, uh, you know, taking the dog out and feeding the dog. Um, but I do think it takes up a lot more of his time and energy than he thought it would. But right. he loves his dog, and I do too. His name is Max, and he couldn't be cuter. I understand. Um, it's called it's called the Virginia Dynasty: Four Presidents and the Creation of the American Nation. It is excellent, and it's great. As soon as I start your books, I, next thing I know, I'm done with them because they're so important too. Uh, and you could follow and well, find out I, more at Lynn V. Cheney. Miss um, Cheney, can't thank you enough. Well, Brian, I just want to congratulate you, too. One of my favorite books is uh, The Secret Six about Washington spies. Now, just, I mean, your books are all well done, but that is my favorite, and I just wanted to congratulate you. Yeah, that took, uh, it was 20 years in the making. But, yeah, and we're still finding <laughs> out new stuff, and we're going to do a special on Fox Nation on that. 
And you should do that on this. Yeah, you should you should actually do that because I think people need to see this. Um, in okay. The, well, anytime. You and got the it. Next time I will be in a room locked up without a puppy. Right, and maybe face to face, like the old days when we could do interviews like that. Stay safe. Wouldn't that be thrilling? Yeah, and stay healthy. Okay, and have a great yeah, Thanksgiving. You too. All right. Thanks, oh, Ms. Jane. You too. You got it. Oh, bye. All right. Uh, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks so much for listening. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, information you want, truth you demand. It's Brian Kilmeade. I appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. Hope you're having a special Thanksgiving. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, listen every single day, Monday through Friday, hopefully you're a local affiliate, briankilmeadeshow.com. Uh, and we're on 9 to noon Eastern time. Sometimes affiliates take two hours, sometimes all three are out of order or we're delay it, but just try to listen to it. It's also on a podcast. Listen, this hour I want to bring to you is an interview with Douglas Murray, fantastic uh, writer. He wrote The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity. And I wanted to talk to him about the 1776 birth of America as opposed to the new push to make it 1619 and rotate it all about slavery. He outlined the difference and how detrimental 1619 is to the future of our country and to our kids. A little bit later, we talked to Dr. Shelby Steele uh, about that and so much more about America today and race. But here's my interview with Douglas Murray. Violence is when an agent of the state kneels on a man's neck until all of the life is leached out of his body. Destroying property which can be replaced is not violence. And to put those things, uh, to use the exact same language to describe those two things, I think really um, it's not it's not moral. That is Nicole Hannah-Jones, the uh, essentially most powerful person uh, in American history right now and the most powerful person, one of the most powerful people who set the agenda at the New York Times. It's scary. Uh, she is creator uh, and she is the uh, the brains behind the 1619 Project that wants to rewrite American history and said America is really built on slavery and the this, this dirt, the, our soil is soaked with blood. These are some of the things that have my next guest concerned. His name is Douglas Murray. The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity, and the Strange Death of Europe. Uh, Douglas has made it clear he's a fan of the United States, and he's worried about it. Douglas, is that the type of statement that keeps you worried about our country? Yes, it does. First of all, it's very good to be with you and your listeners. And yes, as you can tell, I'm, I'm British by origin. But I've always admired the United States, indeed loved the United States. Uh, I think that much of what we enjoy, not just in America, but in the world, is because of the United States. And when I see people in the United States trying to not just pick apart, but blow up the origins of the republic, to, to dismantle its monuments, to desecrate its holy places, to rewrite its history, not in a tone of understanding, but one of loathing, I become very concerned. What is happening to America, it seems to me at the moment, is an assault on its foundations, on its founders, on its founding principles, and it has to be pushed back against. I, I hear you. Uh, and when they take down Jackson, Lincoln, when they rip down Jefferson, when his college, William and Mary, says we don't want to have statues out there in the University of Virginia protest mm -hmm. Jefferson's presence, 
who he founded the he founded the institution. I, I shake my head. And you on the outside, when you were on Fox and Friends over the weekend, and I've seen you before, you exe- you're expressing exactly what people come up to me on a daily basis and say. We used to argue about uh, nations and maybe we shouldn't go to war here or we should. Uh, what should we do the next battle, like uh, the, the Iranian deal? But now we're just talking about what a bad country we are. We're used to being yeah. criticized on the outside, but not from the inside. What started this? What's behind it? It's a very concerted project. I mean, that is something we can all now say with total certainty. It is a concerted project against the American state, against the American republic. Uh, Look at this project, the 1619 project, an an ongoing, rolling project, uh, immediately, of course, awarded the Pulitzer, uh, um, immediately lauded by the New York Times and the other people who were behind it. It's a crock. The whole thing is pseudo-historical crock. This is this is the sort of uh, um, thing which people had the confidence to call out only a few years ago. If somebody had come along even a few years ago and said to Americans, "We're going to we're going to pretend that the republic wasn't founded when it was. It was actually founded a century and a half earlier when the first slaves were brought, when the American Republic hadn't even been founded, it was actually started a century and a half earlier when the first slaves were brought into the American continent from Africa. Well, what is that but an entirely vitriolic, negative attempt to misrepresent and misportray American history? They're accusing America of things that happened before America was founded. And there's a specific reason, and I I wrote about this in The Strange Death of Europe, in the case of America and Australia and other countries. There is an attempt to say that a country like America, particularly America, has nothing good in it because it was rotten from the start, because its start was filled with sin and horror, the primordial sin of slavery, as if America was the only country that had ever had slaves in history, as opposed to one of every civilization in history that did. But when you look at this interpretation of American history, you see they are going for the founding because they know that if you, if you make people uh, doubt the founding, doubt the virtue of the republic, doubt the whole blasted thing, then it will be vulnerable to whatever the far left demands it does next. Americans have pride in their country, rightfully have pride in their country. And here are projects being funded to massive amounts of money, deliberately intended to take away that pride. And it has to be identified as such. It's a hostile force. It is run by hostile actors. They don't wish to improve America they wish to end it. And we're seeing it at every level. And, and we're seeing it now in the curriculum and in New York State in particular. Max Eden was on with Tucker last night or the other night. Uh, he's from the Manhattan Institute. And he sees them building on this 1619 Project, Cup 43. New York State adopted statewide standards in culturally responsive education, the architect of which was an education professor who has literally said that it is white supremacism to expect black students to read and speak American Standard English. Just the other week, another superintendent in New York said that we shouldn't teach the success stories of black Americans because doing so uh, somehow denies or undercuts their ideas of systemic racism. Uh, I think we can expect that this is uh, 
you know, full-on states have committed to it, individual teachers who have a sense of social justice defined by critical race theory are going to take it into their own hands, even if it's not necessarily on the school district's website. I know your head's going to explode. The president is just as enraged as you. He's pushing on this patriotic education and a pushback on all this, uh, on this white supremacist talk as if it's accepted and white people should apologize for things Mm -hmm. that happened 200-plus years ago. But you see it's taking root here. Yes. And this is what I write about in The Man of the Crowds, the way in which our schools, our universities, our media, our, 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 you know, prominent things that were sense-making organs in our own lifetimes that have become deranged bodies. You know, the idea that The New York Times thinks it's its job to unweave the American project is extraordinary to somebody who grew up in the late 20th century. The idea that universities in America, instead of leading the world in science, in technology, in engineering and the arts, should be primarily involved in disintegrating the American project. The idea that schools should teach children not to, not to love their country and to understand it in context and to understand it in context with the rest of the world, but to think that their country is unique in only one way, and that is uniquely bad. The idea the American education system could do that is a large part of the reason that America is now in the divided place it is. Because you all used to agree on this stuff. You all used to agree across the Republican, Democrat, but that the the founding fathers were remarkable men. It's only now that a, a portion of the country, a significant portion of the country, thinks that the founding fathers have nothing good to be said about them. So, so Douglas, I wrote uh, four history books, working on a fifth. And what I get when I go out and meet people, I can't do it now with this virus and I don't have a book out anyway, is people like, thank goodness, I, uh, a positive story about American history. I did mm-hmm. not know that before. I didn't learn this in school. I got to get my kids to read this. They're not learning that. So even prior to the 1619 Project, there was something insidious going on. And I see a lot of these people in the streets now that you think you're getting justice for George Floyd. They're just wrecking the place. And we saw it again last night. Here's what Daniel Cameron, who is an African-American attorney general, and I'm sure you're going to be hearing a lot from in the Republican Party. After he came up with the Breonna Taylor and relayed what the grand jury said, here's what he said. Cut for There will be celebrities, influencers, and activists who, having never lived in Kentucky, will try to tell us how to feel, suggesting they understand the facts of this case and that they know our community and the Commonwealth better than we do. But they don't. Let's not give in to their attempts to influence our thinking or capture our emotions. At the end of the day, it is up to us. We live here together. But almost every athlete tweeted out negative things, how depressed they were about the verdict. And we watched two cops get shot and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of violence last night in Louisville. Mm. Yeah. That's what happens. These words have consequences. These ideas have consequences. The idea, for instance, that all of the American police are imbued with white supremacy, even the black policemen, even the black police chiefs, they're all imbued with white supremacy. This has consequences. When people lie about the police 
force as a whole, it has consequences. When they lie about America, it has consequences. Because there are always going to be in every country people who are ready to be whipped up, who want to burn stuff down, right. who want to pull things down. You know, it's always been said it's, it's the central insight of conservatism, how easy it is to pull things down and how hard it is to build things up. But America has been a building up project. Right. It has not been a project dedicated to pulling things down. And that's why these people who are doing this, not just the ones doing the actual violence, but the people egging them on by lying about the nature gotcha. of the American state have to be confronted and stopped. Douglas Murray, I think you sold a few thousand books just now uh, because this is how you feel. It comes from your heart. The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity, and the Strange Death of Europe. We're going to keep pushing back, and I'd love for you to be there leading the charge. Douglas Murray, thanks so much. It's a great pleasure. Critical Race Theory, the 1619 Project, and the crusade against American history is toxic propaganda ideological poison that, if not removed, will dissolve the civic bonds that tie us together, will destroy our country. That is why I recently banned trainings in this prejudiced ideology from the federal government and banned it in the strongest manner possible. A whole lot to be thankful for. Family, friends, and the best of Brian Kilmeade. Happy Thanksgiving from the Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Mistletoe is not happening. A seller in England is kissing goodbye to Christmas sales. The town of Tenbury Wells has been the center of mistletoe, mistletoe sales in West Central England since Victorian times. And for the first time in memory, a mistletoe auctioneer said he's had to cancel the annual sales because of the coronavirus. Oh, People no. who are social distancing obviously cannot kiss under the mistletoe. Nick Champion predicts that he will sell 75% less mistletoe than normal. Calls it really rather sad. He's actually one of the farmers. I went and looked up that rather sad quote. He seems most disappointed about only being able to kiss your wife or partner this holiday season. He says, <laughs> you might be able to kiss your wife or partner. It seems a bit sad. All right, it's a long way to go. Right, but COVID's hitting. People around the world in all different industries. Did you ever think about the mistletoe industry? I did not think about it. I was thinking about investing heavily, so I'll, I'll probably put all of my money into pot. Probably but a better investment. It might be. <laughs> hey, Glenn, listening in Northeast Pennsylvania. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Brian. How are you today? Good. What's on your mind? Well, you know, you're asking a good question. You know, I did vote for Trump, and, uh, you know, your, your question about whether uh, the election was stolen or not, and 70% people believe it. You know, there probably was some fraud, but, you know, I know there are those that believe in the deep state. And uh, but, you know, I look at Nancy Pelosi. She can't even run San Francisco, let alone, you know, try to plan a, a global pandemic. I just think it's time for Trump to move on and, you know, have a have a good chance of running in 2024, because if he growls out base, uh, you know, gracefully and show, and becomes a little bit more presidential, I think he's going to have a better shot at. 2024 than trying to uh, 
overturn this election. Let's, I think the American public is sick of politics, and it's time to move on. I hear you. Uh, and let's see if there's something there. They could show me the Dominion thing flipped hundreds of thousands of votes. Uh, game on. But they only have a few more days to do it. Uh, thanks so much for the call. Uh, let's go to Elizabeth in New York. Hey, Elizabeth. Hi, Brian. Um, just wanted to let you know how much I love your show. Thank you. And um, I hope my call to you today, I guess, is I hope that you continue because we are seeing some journalists that are not being very good to the American people. And to me personally, I think you are giving all sides. Um, I think that um, I was very disappointed in Kristen Fisher yesterday and the comments she made about it was colorful um, and making fun of Rudy Giuliano. We don't, I, I was very disappointed in her, and um, I just hope that you continue, like you said, if they show us something with Dominion, fine. All in. But what I think, yeah. But what I think people, Trump is a human being, and the things that have happened to him I know. in the last four years, no one would be able to, be, to, to think 100% accurately in presidential. Um, the things that have happened to him, I don't think anybody would be able to act like the perfect person. So I still give gotcha. him a lot of credit. And like you say, if something comes with this dominion, fine. If not, that guy put up with a lot. Let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. Zillow is surfing, uh, says surfing is the biggest escape we all need right now. Millions of people have spent far more time at home than expected. Quote, I go to neighborhoods that obviously I can't afford as a college student. I look at my ideal house and fantasize about what that is uh, going to be, says this one young one woman. She's likely not alone in that. Zillow usage has climbed since March. You know, Zillow is the service that gives you a 360-degree look at almost every house on the planet, comparable shop and all. Basically, if they're for sale or not. If they're ever for sale, it's there, it's listed. It's, it's. I mean, I'm guilty of it. Always. It's fun. Next. Tiger Woods and his son, Charlie, who's 11 now, will play together at the PNC Golf Championship. This is fantastic. On Wednesday, the Golf Pro revealed that his 11-year-old son will team up with him at the PNC. You know, he's big big into his kids. December 17th through the 20th, it's a father-son challenge designed to bring together PGA Tour and LPGA uh, athletes. But here's a little different. You'd watch that, right? I would. It's the first time they're going to compete together, one. And then, two, um, apparently Charlo's already made a name for himself and is an accomplished junior golfer in Florida. And Tiger has been seen being his caddy. And remember, his without his dad, there is no Tiger Woods. And Tiger always said, if I wanted to be punished as if they wanted to punish me as a kid, they would stop me from practicing as opposed to make him practice. I wonder if Charlie is the same way. I know his grandmother's still around and still quite active. So we'll see if that work ethic and talent goes through the family. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everyone. Go to BrianKillmeadShow.com. Listen anytime, anywhere. show that's real this is the brian kilmeade show a black boy dead in the street shot by a white policeman 
This was an execution. This was an assassination. It was four and a half hours before they finally removed the body. It's like they left the body out there to, as a warning for us. To this day, there are people who blame Ferguson Market for Michael Brown's death. Ferguson is a microcosm of this country. White cops, black kids, absolutely race. Race played a significant part of the reaction. What happened in Ferguson was more about America, the very same America that would explode in 2020, where every black was George Floyd and every cop was Derek Chauvin. That was Dr. Shelby Steele. Uh, he is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. He specializes in the study of race relations, and he put together an incredible documentary, What Killed Michael Brown, that not only goes back to what happened in Ferguson, but brings us all up to today. And you could say it's a counter-narrative, but he also uses his real-life experience growing up, what he experienced, what he was doing in the 60s, and fast-forwards the difference between what was happening in the 60s and today. And he told the story like only he could, and we're privileged enough to have. And by the way, you can go go get this now and download this documentary. It's certainly worth it. I don't care what your background is. Dr. Shelby Steele, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, man, I loved your documentary. I learned so much about it. And first off, if I'm going to do the story of my life and there's a lot of people in line to do it, I want you to voice it over. You got the best voice <laughs> ever for a documentary. You just command attention. Um, wow, well, that's nice to hear. <laughs> well, f- first off, your approach. Ferguson happens. It seems like uh, centuries ago, but Ferguson happens. And maybe even before I ask that question, can you give everyone a sense of what it was like growing up as Shelby Steele, what your experience was as a young man, and what brought you here, where you're at today? Well, I grew up uh, sort of in the era of segregation. Um, I was born in the mid-40s. My parents... Uh, were met and married in the civil rights movement. They were founding members of CORE, Congress of Racial Equality. So I grew up in uh, w- with activist, uh, civil rights-focused uh, people with parents who were. Um, this is back in the day when when it, it took a lot of character. There were there were no rewards. There was a lot of sacrifice and a lot of risk. But uh, the, you know, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. There was no grievance industry. There was no way to turn that into anything. So those, that was sort of my the the world that I you know, south side of Chicago, the world that I uh, I grew up in. Um, the '60s changed everything and and uh, changed me as well. I, I went through a, a black militant phase. Um, had the, the afro and the whole. Uh, nine yards, uh, traveled to Africa, uh, sort of wanting to see what uh, my roots were and so forth. And um, and it was a, it was a, a, in, in many ways the best thing I've ever done. Um, uh, Africans would tell me that uh, they were un, they wished their parents their their family had been captured by the slave slave uh, dealers and brought to America so they could be Americans. Really? Uh, yes. That's what they tell Over and over I heard that. Um, so, Dr. Steele, so even go back to I, your, your, even your father. Your father lost both his parents by the time he was 12. He was, he was sleeping in a barn, right? That's right. And then yeah. he, got, he went to the North just for a better life. He wasn't blaming, and it was hideous, and I feel terrible about the segregation that exists in Reconstruction as you read about it. But he had yeah. a different mindset. 
Yeah, he he, uh, and I, I think uh, blacks did. There was there was. Uh, this is the way the world was that they were born into. They you know they did not have an idea that you know there could be a better or a different somehow, and so they had to make their way, and they uh, they did. My father went to the third grade, but then he taught himself to read and write. He became he read all of his life. Uh, uh, he he invented himself and and self-invention is a feature of black culture uh, because we we were born into a kind of a, a or were in those days a, a more chaotic situation uh today thankfully that's uh i have advantages my father never had i uh the world opened in my lifetime um as I have have written about the the oppression of black people in the United States of America as as a sort of uh, norm a, a custom is over with. We we have come into for the first time in our long sojourn here in America we've come into freedom, uh, and freedom is our our great challenge now. Uh, we and we don't have a lot of experience with it. Uh, but it, it's that's what we face now. We don't face racism. Racism is pretty much uh, subdued. It will never completely go away. Uh, but it doesn't stop or, or shape your life in the way it did when I was growing up. So with a lot of people uh, going to be stunned you just said that, and that's part of why we're getting into a documentary. You said you don't uh, you don't face racism. That's right. We. The idea that uh, today that that um, many groups, Black Lives Matter, is an example. Um, racism is their power. Racism is the sort of moral uh, weapon that they hold over America's head. Uh, you're a racist country. You know you are. Therefore, you owe me. I'm entitled. Uh, and so, it, in a sense, try to virtually milk that victimization. Um, and the, you know, it's, it's a, uh, not a good thing because in order to in order to get power that way, you have to th- think of yourself as a victim, as someone who's essentially helpless. And uh, and this is and so the real problems that you face, this challenge to uh, uh, the freedom keeps giving us, this openness that we now face. Uh, we 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 don't know what to do with it, and so in the wow. face of freedom, we uh, we we keep talking about systemic racism. So one of the uh, lines I wrote down, I couldn't type quick enough. I kept pausing this, but one of the lines you say is the civil rights movement was about wanting into America, and this movement was looking to change America, dismantle America. This movement, meaning all the social unrest we've seen, well, emblematic and didn't start, but one of the major moments was Ferguson. Dismantle America. Absolutely. America's bad. Yeah. And rather than I want America to be better and I want in, America's bad, it's got to be dismantled. Right. That's absolutely, yeah. That's the, that's the new, uh, and, you, you know, one asks the obvious question, well, why is that? How can, how can you miss the fact that you're free now? The other side of this whole equation is white America, which keeps functioning out of what I call white guilt. This, this is, since the 60s, has been, white America has been desperate to prove that it is not racist, that it is an open democracy. 
It is, but the whites are, are just absolutely obsessed with it. And so they kept pay, they keep then paying off blacks who are saying they're victims of racism in order to show that they're innocent of racism. So one of the lines you sort of double bind that we we find ourselves in. So one of the lines you say is liberalism stole black problems away from black people. Yes, yes, indeed. Can you expand on that? Uh, And we we have a long section in there on public housing where you you see how destructive public housing was to to the black family. Well, in the black neighborhood I grew up in, there was no public housing. Everybody was on their own. People bought houses and scrambled and, and to to pay for them and so forth and and moved up uh, in in society and that's that's uh, liberalism comes along and says oh we'll take over the problem of housing from you well the minute you do that you infantilize black people you 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 wouldn't do that to whites nope. But somehow America did that to blacks, and it was, we'll take over your educational problems. We'll take over your housing problems. We'll take over the, uh, the collapse of the family. We, we will do. We, we are the actors. We are the doers. You are just sort of invisible ciphers of, of victimization. Huh. So let, let's... And you, you sit on the sidelines and watch us bring you forward. So let, well, let, that let's go obviously to, doesn't work. Obviously. So let's go to Ferguson. I think this is one documentary. I know you, so I know it's going in a different direction. But I think you're going to go examine the unrest in Ferguson. What happened to Michael Brown? What did we think happened? What did happen? And what about Eric Holder? Did he make things better as attorney general or worse? Well, uh, yes, Michael. I mean, uh, Eric Holder made things much worse. <laughs> uh, but. He, he he exemplifies this this relationship. Uh, what happened to Michael Brown is that he lost his temper. He was walking down the street. The policeman asked him to please uh, walk on the sidewalk um, f- for reasons we'll never understand. Michael Brown attacked the, police, the policeman, balled up his fist, hit him in the side of the face, began to wrestle him for his gun. Finally, he broke loose, and he, he ran, uh, started to run away. Then he stopped, he turned around, and he charged Darren Wilson, the policeman, uh, who, who, who backed up, backed up, and backed up, finally couldn't back up anymore, and shot him. That's what happened. Uh, there, there, there was not a shred of evidence that any of this had anything to do with racism. So how long but did the right, pro- away, right away? That's the story. White cop, that's, black, black uh, kid. Black kid. So here is a uh, an incarnation of America's ugly racial history: whites, white supremacy, black victims. Um, why, why did that happen? Because in that victimization was power, uh, as far as blacks were concerned. This gives us the moral upper hand. This gives us a weapon to fight with in this society. So once again, rather than deal with our actual problems, uh, we relied on the power that came from our victimization. And white guilt pays off. White guilt finds a way to to uh, uh, in in whenever there is a, a racial conflict like this, 
it comes up with another social program of some kind. And Shelby Steele, what did you find out uh, when they found and looked into the facts? Even Eric Holder, who came to town and only met with black leaders, not white mayors, he found out, they looked at the facts of the case, and they could not convict this guy. Uh, they could not convict no, they, the, the they officer. could not convict him. There was uh, there were two different uh, grand jury investigations and two different Justice Department investigations and an FBI investigation, and none of them turned up a single piece of evidence that would uh, point to racial animus of any of any kind. Uh, but it, again, that was disregarded even today as we speak. Uh, there are many there are people in Ferguson who believe Michael uh, Brown was killed uh, by, by, uh, out of a racial, a racist motivation. Lastly, you fast forward to George Floyd, and it is a tragedy, and that everyone was horrified by what happened. But what yes. has happened after that is not excusable. Right. Again, there's this, this, the, this impulse to exploit the tragedy. That's become the basic formula for black power in the United States of America. So we're not saying let's have a campaign and really, really make sure our children are educated. We're saying you owe us something because of George Floyd. I don't want to give away your whole documentary, but there's a lot of hope in it. And this guy, Pastor Brooks. And you talk about, and and there's a lot of heroes who just want to give these kids, and their kids, uh, no one cares about their color. They just want to give kids an opportunity. So does almost everybody listening right now, by the way. And Pastor Bush is going to make a difference. And so so are other people. By not giving people money, by letting them know their potential, their opportunity, and the education that is out there, and making sure they go for it, rather than look at bad role models that are too often around them. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's... uh... It's a simple thing. It's not, uh, as I say, it's not higher math. It, 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 those old, I, I was able to advance because even in the midst of segregation, my father said, you're going to work hard. <laughs> you're going to get everything you can out of school. You're going to go as far as you can. You're going to run into racism every day. Overcome it. But that's not going to stop you. And that's got to be the, I hate to say well, it. Well, that was right. the black str- strength. That's what enabled us to survive four centuries. Of oppression. Absolutely. It doesn't mean it was right, but it means no, it you, no. you just keep working. You keep working until you realize that American society has made the improvements to level the playing field, but you can't burn it down. And I had no, uh, some no, sound bites, no, but no. you're too fascinating to talk to to roll it of Hawk Newsom of Black Lives Matter saying, if we don't get what we want, we're going to burn it down. That is that. Yeah. If you watch this documentary, you're hardly an apologist. You lived a You've earned everything that you've achieved. Your family has got to be um, unbelievably proud of you. And there's so much that you have learned that you're trying to impart in this documentary. And I hope people go get it. It's called What Killed Michael Brown. Dr. Shelby Steele, thanks so much. Thank you very much. You got it. Back in a moment. Getting past all the rhetoric. It's Brian Kilmeade. That makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. 
with Thanksgiving around the corner. Follow recommendations from medical experts. Getting together with your family via Zoom to ensure your loved ones stay safe is the right thing to do. Wear a mask, take it off when you eat or drink, then put it back on. Keep six feet apart as much as you can. And try not to share utensils. All right, thanks for those same tips that you've been giving us for eight months as if they're brand new. And these politicians are too good good at one thing, uh, two things, telling us we're not good enough, and number two, telling us the same thing over and over again, and they make you, I'm going to amend that, number three, uh, letting us know what we can't do. And what we can't do is, for example, go out and work full-time. What we can't do is perhaps go to a, a bar and not eat. We, have, we can't just go grab a drink. In many cases, you can't even go inside. In some places, those bars don't even exist anymore because they're out of business. Because these landlords want to get paid, and you stopped. And, of course, Congress decided not to give any more aid packages. I wouldn't mind if they decided that was the best course of action because we're running up the debt. No, but that's only because they don't get along. They're within a few maybe $500 billion of each other, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're talking about $3.4 trillion and the Republicans started at $1.5 trillion, to think that they were at $2.4 trillion and couldn't come up with a deal is really disgusting. So Shelby Steele brought up an interesting thing earlier, and he talked about race in America and how people, uh, minorities, being sold a raw deal when they should really get involved in life and the evolution that he made in his life from a 60s activist. And I thought the most telling part was he wanted to – he goes, I marched to be part of America. These guys are marching to get away from America or change America, which I just don't understand. And he's talking about Black Lives Matter. What I didn't ask Shelby back then, which I would ask now, is the two-volume set – of Barack Obama's autobiography, does he have an editor? And one of which he says, I think Donald Trump was elected, and I'm paraphrasing, because America didn't like seeing a black person in the White House, and this was their answer, which sounds mysteriously like Van Jones. He called it a white lash. Nothing to do with that, Mr. President. You did a good enough job to get reelected by a substantial margin. You left extremely popular. It's not against you. It was any vote was against your policies. We have had enough of apologizing, the terrible economic plan, the horrible foreign policy. People liked you. They just didn't like what your administration did. Stop taking the play in the race card, please. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.